Lord, we love you for taking the cross and a crown of thorns upon your brow so that one day we may be crowned with eternal life. There's no one like you. Help me, Lord, to speak well of you so that people may love you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard me say it before, when we read the letters, or as they're commonly called, the epistles of the New Testament, we're literally reading somebody else's mail. That is never more evident than it is in the tiny little letter, shortest that Paul wrote, that we're reading today. If you don't have your Bible with you, or perhaps you don't own a Bible, please feel free to help yourself to to one in a seat near you. There should be Bibles underneath the seats below you or around you. If you want to give Bibles to people, you're always welcome to take some here from our worship center and take them out with you uh, to give away to people, to read the Bible with them. In your Bible, find the little tiny letter of Philemon. That'll send some of you to the table of contents. Let me help, okay? It's a very small letter. Depending on your Bible, it may be printed on one page. Philemon is right after Titus and before the big, beautiful book of Hebrews, almost at the end of your New Testament. Everybody got it? How many have read it? A few. It really is one of those letters that hides in the New Testament. It's such a deeply personal letter that you really, in this case particularly, you definitely have the absolute understanding that you're reading a deeply personal letter. Yesterday I heard in the news of someone who died on a hiking trip and knowing that she was going to die and she would never be found, left some journal writings for her family. She, her body was discovered years after her death. And the, the, the rescuer, well, the, in this case, the, the person who retrieved her, her belongings, started looking into the journal and immediately said, I could tell this was so personal and so intimate that I closed it up and just wanted to make sure that it got to her family. Philemon is nearly that intense. Let me give you the backstory. Paul is writing from prison. He is writing to a friend of his apparently a man of some means. He's, Philemon's got some money. It seems evident that a church, a Christian church, meets in his house in Colossae. This little letter of Philemon went along with the letter to Colossians that we just finished studying. It's directed to Philemon, and it's written person to person. This isn't one of Paul's very closest associates like Timothy or Titus was. This is an ordinary Christian but someone who Paul knows well. In fact, he knows him so well, Paul, we read in the letter, led him to faith in Christ. And one of the things that makes the reading a little bit awkward, you can tell that Paul is leading up to asking a big favor. Have you ever, had a, you ever gotten an email or had a conversation where you can tell they're leading up to something big and it's getting uncomfortable for them and you just wish they'd get to the point and let you know what it is that they want? Ever had those conversations? Philemon has a little bit of that in it because Paul is crossing all kinds of boundaries. 
He's writing on behalf of a man named Onesimus. Onesimus is at the center of this letter. He's the man that started all the trouble that got the letter written in the first place. We're so far removed from our culture, it's, what happen, is happening in Philemon is so far removed from our culture that we have to stretch a little bit in our understanding to know what's going on here, but Philemon was a wealthy landowner and he had many servants, apparently, and one of those servants or slaves was a man named Onesimus. Onesimus had a good name. We're not sure if it was his nickname that became a name. That wouldn't be uncommon for a man in his position. His name literally means profitable or useful. But Philemon has endured something in his household that would have gotten the rest of the crew talking. Onesimus has done something unthinkable and very criminal in the ancient world. He was a slave. And we read between the lines that he must have taken money and perhaps some jewelry from Philemon. That would have been the best play a slave could have made. He might have ransacked the place. He certainly took things from him, and he ran for his freedom. Now you need to understand something about slavery to put this in its context. When I say slavery, horrifying images of the American South in a time that thankfully is now ended in the United States come to mind. Slavery in the ancient world wasn't like that. Most slaves expected or received or gained their freedom somehow by the time some people think they were about 30. Slavery was so common in the ancient world, it was much like having a job in our time. But make no mistake, being a slave was, if you had a bad master, would put you in a bad position. You didn't really have any social standing at all. You were sort of an instrument. That's why Paul graciously addresses both masters and slaves in Colossians. If he calls for the freedom of all slaves, it will probably, humanly speaking, destroy the small band of Christians that were alive in the world at that time and completely disrupt society. So what he does instead is he brings grace to bear on a bad institution so that by the time Christianity was done with the ancient world, slavery had been eradicated. What sorts of things does Paul do? Well, you read in Colossians two weeks ago, we studied together, Paul gives many instructions to Christian slaves telling them how to do their jobs, to not do it just when the master is watching, but to work as if for the Lord, knowing that someday they will receive in heaven what they have no right to on earth, a reward from God Himself. In other words, he addresses slaves as people who are morally capable Nobody in the ancient world thought of a slave as a person. They thought of him simply as a tool. So Paul quietly does what God has always intended for man. He elevates the dignity of people. He speaks to masters and slaves as equal in Christ and subtly applies grace to the situation so that slavery was eventually destroyed. But right now, in his lifetime, with Philemon and Onesimus, there's real trouble. Because in the ancient world, a slave who stole and ran, if he was caught, was subject to any kind of punishment the master wanted. He could have sent bounty hunter, what we would call a bounty hunter, after him, brought him back, and made an example of him if he wished. This was not uncommon in the ancient world to keep people in their place and make sure that there wasn't a slave uprising. The punishment could have been severe enough to merit Onesimus the death penalty. By crucifixion. 
So we read this very short little letter. We read that God's hand was at work in everything. The church that met in Philemon's house is now short one person. A slave has run for it. But providentially, I cannot begin to imagine how scholars have multiplied literally hundreds of pages trying to imagine the circumstances by which this happened. But what did happen was Paul somehow, though he was in prison and on house arrest, met Onesimus. And because Paul never met anybody just like you who didn't need Jesus, he gave Onesimus the gospel. And that young man, that runaway slave who had probably gone to Rome to hide among the lowlifes there and mix in and try to restart his life in the worst part of society, became a Christian. And he probably began, from what we read, began to serve Paul because in an ancient prison, it was very much up to your friends and family to bring you your food and clothing. Onesimus became a Christian, and now Paul is going to send a letter back with the slave himself directed to his former master, Philemon, asking Philemon to behave like a Christian when justice in the ancient world could have made Philemon kill him instead. Let's read together. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. From what you're reading so far, Philemon, good guy or bad guy? Good guy, right? A church meets in his home and his character is such, according to verse 5, he has love for other Christians and he places his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Verse 6 is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to translate, but here's what I take it to mean. When Paul refers in my translation to Philemon sharing the faith, he doesn't mean what you and I mean when we talk about sharing our faith. He doesn't mean that he's witnessing or telling someone about Jesus. He's saying, Philemon, you participate. You're in the faith with us. And my prayer for you is that because you share our faith, because you're a partner in it, that that will become effective so that you will fully understand every good thing that is yours in Christ. When I discovered this little verse this week, because I'd read it many times but hadn't paid much attention to it, it's kind of become a prayer that I have for you. See, the most common gap that I find in my life and in the people I meet with as a pastor is you don't fully understand who you are and all that you have been given in Christ. The world, sin, shame, guilt, the evil of others, a harsh society that crowds grace out altogether doesn't let you believe, hasn't programmed or conditioned you or made it allowable for you to begin to believe, much less live out half of the things that belong to you in Jesus. 
Your identity in Christ is so secure that you're as saved as you ever will be. You are holy and precious and faithful and fruitful in God's sight. That's your identity. The rest of it is walking it out, putting in practice what your position already is in Jesus. That's what Paul is praying for Philemon. You're in the faith. I want you to understand, he says, the fullness the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Again, good guy, bad guy. Really good guy. He is someone who refreshes the hearts of other Christians. My invitation to you is that you would be that kind of person. There are two kinds of people sometimes in a congregation, those who drain others and those who refresh others. If you're the kind of person that makes everybody cringe when they see you coming, if you can part a crowd like Moses parted the Red Sea, maybe rethink the attitude that you're putting out towards your fellow believers. Philemon wasn't like that. Whoever it was, every Christian that came into his home, that came within his circle, found their heart refreshed. They were strengthened. They were encouraged. One of the reasons Crosspoint is healthy and growing is that we have a multitude of people who seek to refresh and encourage other people. We had a memorial service here yesterday, and I sat and marveled at how Christians sought to encourage, refresh, and strengthen each other in a very difficult time for a family that we're just getting to know, but we already love. That is what the gospel does. Now, Paul is going to make the big request. And as we read this, here's what I want you to ask yourself. Because he's going to lay it on thick. And my question for you is this. Do you think in what I'm going to read to you now that Paul is using a guilt trip? Okay? Ready? Let's read together and see if Paul is putting Philemon on a guilt trip. Paul says, accordingly, because this is the kind of man you are, you're the kind of person that brings me joy and comfort because you love me. You're the kind of person that refreshes the hearts of other believers. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh, in other words, as a man, and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. That's why I believe that Paul led Onesimus to Christ, uh, Philemon to Christ. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What's at the heart of this letter? Something you're not accustomed to and something that you have not been taught to expect in the world. The heart of this letter is grace. The world operates on justice. Students don't expect grace from their teachers. They're surprised and grateful when they get it, but they do not expect it. Nobody expects to miss class day after day and turn in half-written assignments and get a good grade. People who have jobs and get sick feel the pressure of getting better quickly or less they get asked to leave the organization. Grace is nothing that we're accustomed to. In fact, one of the sad things about living when we do now in the United States is that grace seems to almost be completely forgotten in just about every public conversation. Labels and categories and condemnations and judgments come out that quickly. People are sorted into groups of all kinds of differences that make them the other and every tribe retreats upon itself. God help you if you ever want to leave that tribe and talk to the other. Grace is just nothing that is known and expected and used in this world. This letter is all about grace, and I want to tell you briefly what this personal, awkward, highly sensitive little letter from Paul to what is at least a disappointed, if not an angry man, means, because I want to tell you what difference grace makes. First of all, Grace means that you're forgiven. Verse 10 is, would have been a shock to Philemon. He said, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus took this letter back himself. Along with the letter to the Colossians, he and another man took these two letters to the church at Colossae. And Philemon would have known probably before anybody else, hey, you're the guy who stole from me is on his way back. Well, how dare he? He presumes a lot. Paul tells him in verse 10, you may have thought this was a useless young man, someone who denied his own name of being profitable and useful, but I'm sending, you, I'm sending him back to you as someone entirely different. He's my child. While I was in prison, he became my spiritual child. Verse 15 says something amazing. This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. If anyone you love is far from Jesus, let me invite you to camp on verse 15 and put your hope in God. Because when Onesimus stole the money and the jewelry and ran for the big city, he left his He left his boss in a world of trouble 
thinking that that might upset the entire household. Certainly he's been defrauded. Certainly a crime has been committed against him. Paul, in prison, sees that the hand of God is at work in all of these things. Nobody knows how, but somehow a runaway slave met this apostle, and what his identity was changed because of the forgiveness that he received from God. What I'm trying to tell you in simple words is don't ever give up on anybody. This week I had lunch with a, a guy I had just met. We met for the first time over lunch. And he told me an amazing story of a young man I knew about nine years ago who got so far from Jesus he broke his parents' heart. They had pretty much despaired of him ever coming back, I think, to the Lord. They were hopeful and tearful, but our conversations, he was always sweet and kind to me, but we could both tell that he was enduring my company because he was far from the Lord, and he didn't particularly needed to be, wanted to be reminded that he needed to come back. That young man now is in ministry and preparing to go overseas as a missionary. Don't ever give up on anybody. Grace means that eternal debts are going to be forgiven. Last week I was in Mexico, the city, the, the bigger church there in the city rented the city theater to bring all of my parent, all the churches that my parents have helped start over the years in the city of Chihuahua together. And we had an amazing, amazing service. After the service, I met the pastor of the smallest and the, the poorest of those churches. It's in the little town, I've told you about this before, it's in the little town of Cebollas, Mexico. Anybody know, anybody speak Spanish? You know what Cebollas means? <laughs> Onions. I'm amazed how, many, how much Spanish is spoken in this congregation. Well, imagine what the town looks like if they decided to call it Onions. <laughs> they could have called it Hot Dirt, and that would have worked just as well, too. There's... Really, the most notable thing in this little, I would call it a town, it's, it's literally just a, a spot on the road with a sign. The most notable thing in it is the adobe church building, which would just about fit on, on the stage behind me. It's tiny. They're poor. They're subsistence farmers. I used to go up there and preach to some of the poorest people on earth about giving and pray and beg God to give me the courage to do what the Bible said and teach them to give. You know, after the first year, we taught them to give to missions themselves. Subsistence farmers who were literally on the point of starvation sometimes gave over $2,000 that year to send missionaries overseas out of Mexico. Well, the reason I'm telling you all that is the pastor of the little church in yes is a guy who has endured greatly in that little town. His wife has endured break-ins and physical attacks that she's barely fought off with success, and they refuse to leave because they love the church, and they know that people need Jesus in that corner of the mountains. And I was surprised to meet him as the pastor because when he was 12 years old, he would hide in ambush and throw rocks at the church van as we went around to pick people up. Okay? That's what Jesus does. He forgives people. He remakes them. He turns slaves into sons. And that's not all. Not only because of grace are we forgiven, we're also accepted. Look at verse 16. No longer, he says, receive him no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
Verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Philemon, I know how socially difficult this is for you. I know the risk you're running by letting someone steal from you and welcoming him back, not only without justice, but actually with the celebration and receiving him as you would your own son. But if I mean anything to you, treat him as you would treat me. Why is that verse in the Bible? Why this awkward letter? Because it's a picture of what the grace of Jesus does for you. You've heard this before, but I'm convinced every time this is announced, a spiritual battle takes place in the heart and minds of people so that you won't believe it, and so that you'll keep living the way you did before you met Jesus. Listen, in Christ you are accepted. And it's not that you're barely good enough. It's not that you've squeaked by. It's not that God graded on a curve and let you in. You're accepted as Christ is accepted. This is the most astonishing thing about the good news of Jesus. See, there are sinful, dark, twisted, ugly things about every one of our stories and in every one of our lives. But because of the good news of Jesus, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, your heavenly Father, the righteous judge, who Psalm 7, verse 11 says, is angry with the wicked every day. He takes everything that called for the indignation and the justice of God and put it at the cross of His Son as if Jesus were the guilty party and makes a wonderful exchange so that everything that is good and righteous in Jesus is true now by God's own reckoning and God's own accounting. It's true of you instead. So it's not a matter of earning, it's a matter of receiving this free gift. That's why it's grace. That's why it's so hard to believe because we're not accustomed, we're always embarrassed when someone tries to give us a lavish gift. We're not wired for it because sin broke us and teaches us to expect justice. And that expectation is just and right, but God was not only just and holy, He was also merciful and loving. So that Jesus himself announces it like this, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that means that in Christ you are accepted. How accepted? In verse 12 we read that this old, chained up, imprisoned apostle refers to Onesimus as his very heart. Quick little word about that. Some people who love Paul's letters, especially if they love the book of Romans, it seems, see Paul's diamond-hard, crystal-clear love and explanation of truth, and they see that because Paul loves the truth so much, they make this bad spiritual mistake. They think that because Paul is clear and unyielding and rigid because of the truth of God, it gives them license to be mean themselves. You ever met Christians like that? They're mean, they're harsh, they're unforgiving, they're judgmental, and when asked why, they say, it's because I love the truth. You ever met anybody like that? I love the truth, that's why I'm this way. I can't smile. I know the truth and I love it. Can I help you with that biblically? Paul loved the truth. 
Jesus was the truth. And it was their knowledge, their love, and in Jesus' case, His very identity as the truth of God, His love of truth is what made Him merciful and loving and accepting. He knew that God was holy and God was a just judge. He knew that every human soul that ever lived would one day face God Himself with either their own sins or the righteousness of God upon them. That's true of you, by the way. You'll face God and you'll answer one day for yourself and God will judge you by your own conscience and your own sins or by the clean life and the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. Paul's love of the truth is what made him compassionate and merciful. And what made this apostle that lives and that writes with absolute clarity and speaks of heaven, hell, and judgment and terrifying things that come to every person at the end of their life, and they truly face this holy, inaccessible God who is perfectly just and knows everything about us. That's the very thing that broke his heart with compassion and made him run away, call a runaway slave his son and his heart. It's our love, the truth, that should make us gracious. We shouldn't excuse knowing and loving the truth We shouldn't use that as an excuse for meanness. The final thing, and the heart of Paul's letter really, he says to Onesimus in verse 11, Onesimus formerly was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. He made a pun with his name. This boy you've called useful? He blew that up. One day he grabbed the fine china and the good silver and all the cash he could lay his hands on and ran. And maybe you were angry that day and said, that that boy's useless to me. Not only is he useless, he's destructive. Paul said now he's useful to both of us. What grace does is it doesn't only settle your debts with God and make you as acceptable to God as His own Son, Jesus. It also makes you profoundly, deeply, eternally useful to God. And I have to be really practical here. I'm so excited, so thrilled about what's happening in our church, but as I pray and talk to other leaders, volunteer and people on the pastoral staff, We know that there is spiritual capacity here at Crosspoint that is untapped. And your gifts, your resources going unused and sitting in the pew rather than being out in the lives of people for this simple reason. When you contemplate being of service in the Lord's church and in His kingdom, you don't feel useful. You think about what you don't know yet about the Bible. You think about your past. You think with regret about guilt and shame and things that are maybe in the distant past or maybe last week that make you feel unworthy. Understand what's happening in the life of Onesimus. He just met Paul. This transformation and this affirmation didn't take very long. Onesimus trusted Christ and Paul did not harbor a criminal. That would have been criminal in itself. He did the radical thing. He said to him, Onesimus, you owe him. I want you to go back. Take this letter with you. I think he'll forgive you because make no mistake, and people who are walking in sobriety know this, having the forgiveness of God does not clear you from seeking the restitution of other people. 
Onesimus is forgiven and accepted in the family of God. That's what Paul has been telling Philemon. Now he says, you need to go back home, and on the basis of the grace that unites you both, you need to reconcile with the boss. And he was useful. That quickly, he was useful. So are you. You know who leads more people to faith in Christ than other, any other group of Christians? People who just got saved. I talked to someone who's been saved for over 20 years. He thought carefully about it when we were talking about this. He said, I'm not sure I, don't, I, don't, I'm not sure I have any friends who don't know Jesus. Yeah, that happens. Usually within three or four years, we build a bubble, and we get so well-connected and so well-loved in our little community that we have no real connections outside to the world that actually needs Jesus. Let me just tell you, if you're merely a spectator at Crosspoint, if you're in Christ, you're useful. You're profitable. Not just to run our program, you're eternally profitable. You're the kind of person that because you have the identity and the gifts of Christ now, you can make an eternal difference. We're always in need of people to work with kids and with young people. And I know you're out there. I know there's someone that God has saved and gifted in some way to be a blessing, to bring the gospel into the lives of students and children and help them see Jesus incarnated by your witness Please, please, please understand what the gospel did for you. It meant that you're forgiven vertically with God. It meant that you're accepted into God's family, and it means that you're useful. And all of this, praise God, at God's own expense. That's the beauty of the gospel. Look at verse 18. Paul says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Put that verse on the screen. Philippians 1, verse 18. Read that verse with me. Here's Paul's closing appeal because he knows this young man's in deep trouble. He knows the social and judicial risk that he's running by sending him back with this letter. Here's Paul's final assurance to the wronged boss. Would you read it with me? He said, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Why is this little letter, why is this little verse, why is this deeply personal mail inside the covers of your Bible? Because that's the gospel. You see, that's the voice of Jesus speaking to the Father on the cross. If He has wronged you at all, if Bruce or Martin or Jim, if Sarah or Rachel or Bill or Sue, if they have wronged you at all, if he, if she owes you anything, Jesus said to the Father, charge that to my account. That's what grace does. It covers expenses. It covers debts. It remakes people. It takes slaves and makes them into sons. It takes criminals and makes them dearly beloved children who are now, for the rest of their life, going to be profitable in ministry. That's what Jesus did for you. So how would you answer the question? Did you think Paul put this man on a guilt trip? You know, for years I thought so. I read this and I thought, man, old, I'm an old man, I'm in prison. I led you to Christ. You owe me. For years I read this as a guilt trip. 
Can I tell you that this week from wrestling with this little book, I see it differently now. I see that Paul is actually doing something better, something higher. He's inviting, he's not putting Philemon on a guilt trip. He's inviting him on a grace trip. It's the very same thing that God wants us to do with others. There are people out there who have wronged you. They have wronged you and they are outside of the family of God. You know that truth. You love that truth. What grace requires is that you extend to them the same grace and love that was once extended to you. If there are broken relationships within the family of God, that means that we extend grace to one another. Not because it's right, but because it's what love requires. Not because we're commanded, but because we love the Lord in return. What this world needs and what this world will be changed by is not more guilt. It will only be changed by grace. So if you don't know Jesus, my personal, right now, eye-to-eye, person-to-person invitation to you is that you will turn away from your sin and the things that have kept you away from God, the things that your conscience tells you are between you and God. Hear Jesus saying to the Father, if He has wronged you at all, and you have, and He owes you anything and you do, hear Jesus saying, charge that to my account. Trust Jesus, put it on His account, and He'll save you. He did for a slave and turned him into a son. He'll do the same for you. Let's pray together. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, can I invite you personally in the name of Jesus to just trust Him? Tell Him you're sorry for your sin, you're giving up on trying to earn His favor, that you understand that going to church and doing the stuff and saying a prayer and reading your Bible, that's not going to be enough. Ask Him to be your Savior. And as if the case of many of us here, you already have this grace, can I invite you to walk out into this needy, sin-wrecked world filled with people who commit crimes and blow it and blow families and social fabric apart? And don't deal with them with guilt. Invite them on a grace trip instead. How different the world would be if everyone who has been forgiven by Christ walked out into the world loving the truth with a tender, merciful heart to give grace to others so that they would see Him. Maybe your family's hurt. Maybe you've been separated from people. Would you ask God to give you grace right now in that relationship? Grace changes everything. Lord, As we close our service, I pray that right now, if someone is not absolutely sure of their relationship with you, that right now you would persuade them and draw them lovingly across the line of faith. Let them be humble right now, ask for your forgiveness right now, and ask Jesus to be Savior right now and be saved. For the many of us, Lord, who already know you, help us walk back into our families, our jobs, our schools, our friendships and invite people to a journey of grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.